Hello, and welcome to Alert, radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Ashley Titterton. And I'm Michael Welch. On today's program, in the wake of charges of mafia involvement in the construction industry implicating political parties in Quebec, we speak to Montreal-based activist and political observer Roger Rachid about the political developments in La Belle Province. And on the eve of Monday's provincial election, we'll speak with Regina-based political economist and author John Warnock about the campaign so far. Here are the alert headlines for the week of November 3rd, 2011. Palestine was admitted as a member of UNESCO on Monday after filling a bid for full membership at the United Nations last month. 107 members voted in favor, 14 against, and 52 abstentions. The symbolic value of the vote gives more weight to the Palestine Liberation Organization's demand that the UN recognize the state of Palestine. The U.S. has already cut funding to UNESCO and is still committed to vetoing Palestine's statehood bid at the U.N. Security Council. Foreign Affairs Minister John Baird said the federal conservatives are reconsidering the level of support they give UNESCO. 120 workers at a health test lab in Brandon, Manitoba, are planning to walk off the job on November 14th. Workers say that disputes over wages, job security, and workloads motivated them to vote in favor of job action. Also on the picket line, Brandon is striking faculty of Brandon University. Members of the Brandon University Faculty Association have been on strike since October 12th, surpassing the length of the 17-day strike in 2008. University administration refused BUFA's most recent proposal, which would have resolved all outstanding disputes and resumed classes as early as Wednesday. Late last week, Occupy Oakland proposed a citywide general strike for Wednesday, November 2nd. At the time of writing, SEIU 1021, the largest union in Oakland, gave their support encouraging their members to take earned time off, vacation days, or days off without pay to participate thereby circumventing illegal strike action. Other unions are encouraging members to participate but cannot issue a work stoppage without violating union bylaws. Occupy Oakland is hoping nobody goes to school, nobody goes to work, and that the city shuts down. A website has been set up that lists over 200 names and emails of CEOs and executives of major American financial corporations. OccupyTheBoardroom.org, a project associated with Occupy Wall Street, allows people to tell their stories and have their voices heard. Over 7,000 emails have been sent from victims of foreclosures, students with overwhelming debt, and others from the 99%. Organizers will also hand-deliver these messages on a march in New York this Friday. Around 2,000 Pakistanis gathered outside Parliament in Islamabad last week to protest the increasing occurrence of U.S. drone strikes in their country. Late last week, a suspected U.S. drone strike killed four civilians. Although the U.S. does not admit this activity publicly in Pakistan, nearly 60 drone strikes have been reported this year. Protesters claim these strikes kill more civilians than fighters. Those are the alert headlines for the week of November 3, 2011.
Now for Around the Left for the week of November 3rd, 2011. Blood on the Tracks, an evening with peace activist and Vietnam veteran S. Brian Wilson, will take place Monday, November 7th from 6 o'clock p.m. to 10 o'clock p.m. at the Steelworkers Hall at 25 Cecil Street in Toronto. Hear about Wilson's activism and recently published memoir and get an update on the campaign to win asylum in Canada for Iraq war resistors. The suggested donation is $20. The event is a fundraiser for the War Resistors Support Campaign. Email resistors at simpatico.ca for more information. What's behind the abolition of the Canadian Wheat Board? On Monday, November 7th at 7 o'clock p.m. in Winnipeg, come out to Aqua Books at 274 Gary Street for a discussion about the CWB. Activist Ken Kalturnik will be discussing the political economy of Canadian agriculture and the class interests behind the abolition of the CWB. All are welcome. For more information, email umsaltis at cc.umanitoba.ca. Incensed by skyrocketing corporate profits and plummeting average incomes? Think wealthy Canadians and corporations should contribute more to public goods and services? Why aren't they? What can we do about it? On November 10th, from 7.30pm to 10 o'clock p.m. at the Steelworkers Hall at 25 Cecil Street in Toronto, join Interpares and Canadians for Tax Fairness for an evening of discussion on how to foster economic equality, featuring Jean Symes of Interpares, Armin Yanisian, a leading progressive economist, and Dr. Yao Graham, a renowned African activist and coordinator of Third World Network Africa. This event is free, although donations are welcome. For more information, search Toronto Inequality Matters on Facebook to find the event page. That's all for Around the Left for the week of November 3rd, 2011. The world of Quebec politics has been rocked uh, recently by allegations of corruption that has implicated political parties, the mafia, and the construction industry in scandal. At the same time, a new political party has arrived to challenge both the governing liberals and the sovereignist PQ. How are these and other developments shaking up the political landscape of La Belle Province? Joining us on the line from Montreal is social and political activist and a political observer, Roger Rachi. He's also a contributor to Canadian Dimension magazine. So thanks for joining us, Roger. Thank you. Okay, could you first of all talk about uh, the uh, developments around this, uh, uh, basically the, the scandal and how that's uh, uh, popped up in terms of the um, right. the way the, 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 the provincial government has uh, reacted sure. to it? Well, the scandal has been brewing for over two years. Uh, there have been allegations of uh, bed rigging, misuse of funds, uh, kickbacks to political parties for over two years, almost three, in, in, implicating both the provincial Liberal Party and also uh, the mayor of Montreal and his party. Uh, he's a former Liberal minister. He's going back over about 20 years or so. 
And it has kept up for the past two years with more and more scandals erupting, more and more allegations of corruption coming up. Uh, it has also been talked about in the National Assembly several times over the past few months. And the government had refused, uh, for the past two years, had refused to call a commission of inquiry into the construction industry. About a month ago, a report was leaked, a report that was commissioned uh, by the government and had been written by a former chief of police of Montreal. That report was leaked, and the report basically established the fact that there was systematic bid rigging, that this bid rigging was linked to the mafia and linked specifically to financing political parties in Quebec. The pressure became so big that the government finally announced the commission about a week ago. But uh, the commission that was announced was fairly toothless. For example, it had no power to subpoena uh, people in front of it. And that was considered to be an out-and-out attempt to prevent the commission from getting to the bottom of things. Within about 48 hours, the government had to backtrack and grant the judge that was named to head the commission the power to subpoena people, uh, to subpoena witnesses if the judge felt so. Um, so the allegations have been swirling around the Liberal parties and have caused it to sink in the polls systematically for the past two years, and the provincial government has become a very, very unpopular government. I think it's somewhere around 25% approval in the province, with about 70%. Mm-hmm. Uh, disapproving of its performance. That sounds, uh, I mean, I, I think that people outside of Quebec, when they think of, they're reminded of the, the, the sponsorship scandal. Exactly. Exactly. And, uh, the parallel is striking because in both cases, you have the Liberal Party. In the first case, the sponsorship scandal, it was a federal Liberal. In this case, it's a provincial Liberal Party. And it's a culture of corruption that has been developing in the province, I would say, for about 50 years. Uh, following all the scandals around the sponsorship, uh, you know, project that, and what, especially the federal government under Chrétien and Stéphane Dion at the time had attempted to do, it created a tolerance for this kind of, of, of corruption, this kind of direct uh, influencing of political parties and this direct financing of political parties that became sort of accepted because it was part of a higher cause. In the case of Croatia and Dion, it was a higher cause of saving Canadian federalism. You know, the Liberal Party basically applied the same recipe, but obviously for provincial uh, purposes, you know. And in, and in fact, uh, some of the closest advisors of uh, Premier Charest are linked directly to engineering companies that have profited and participated in those schemes. And this was brought up in the National Assembly, by the way, by Amin Kadir uh, from Quebec Solidaire. Twice he mentioned directly, in name, uh, the local organizer of Jean Charest in his writing and the main uh, financial uh, contributor, one of the main financial, actually, uh, bagman, you can call it, for the Liberal Party, who is also the vice president of a very big engineering company. The uh, revelations about mafia involvement, I mean, how, how much has that outraged the, uh, the Quebec public? Totally. It has contributed to uh, an incredible uh, dislike for uh, politicians and political parties. I mean, one of the reasons uh, the NDP did as well as it did in the last election is this very widespread rejection 
of mainstream politics and corrupt political parties. Uh, in the last federal election, the NDP very smartly, you know, surfed on this on this feeling of, of rejection and dislike of established mainstream politicians, and it's now rebounding as on the provincial scene with a new party being set up, and before that party even being formalized as a party and recognized as such, it's already leading in the polls. Now, is this? Are we looking then at a, a right versus left? divide or maybe old versus new? I mean, are people formulating any policies that are, you know, beyond this idea of getting away from the old boys club? That's exactly what uh, a lot of people are discussing. I believe that it's a right-left divide. In that right-left divide, you have also a tremendous amount of volatility because people who for generations have been voting Parti Québécois or Liberal Party have been shaken loose, you know, from uh, from their party affiliation. And that translates into incredible volatility where people are attracted to both new figures or new parties and at the same time untested parties, untried or unknown parties. And people, you know, surfing on sort of a populist wave can indeed for a while get a certain amount of support. Uh, this is a difficult thing to realize, but when you're caught in, in, in the midst of this kind of major shakeup of the political scene, and, and new forces arise, and old forces thinking, it doesn't mean that the whole electorate follows you, you know, lock and step. Far from that. All kinds of confusions can arise, and all kinds of, you know, uh, new formations of politicians are there to try and attempt to take advantage of this kind of confusion. And that's why. Sometimes people who are voted for the NDP federally might end up voting for a right-of-center party provincially because it might seem to be new. That's exactly part of the political work that we have to do. Now, yeah, speaking about new political parties, the, there's a, a former PQ uh, cabinet minister, mm-hmm. Francois Legault, Legault yeah. uh, has uh, formed this new, uh, I guess it's a right-of-center party. And is this, you're expecting that this... Uh, party is going to galvanize some of this out-with-the-old sentiment? Already, I mean, in the past four months, five months, I would say, polls have come out every month showing this party to be consistently leading in the polls. I mean, on the hypothetical question, would you vote for Francois Legault-led party? Uh, anywhere from 35 to 45 to 46% of the electorate responds positively. Hmm. So, the, you know, the, but he hasn't formulated his party yet. I mean, I think today he was actually applying uh, to have the party uh, recognized formally. So within two or three weeks, the party will appear as a party, and then we'll be able to start judging exactly its impact. But already he was leading the poll. Actually, the only uh, poll that showed him possibly thinking or falling to second place is a poll that just came out Sunday to show you how confused the situation is. It was another hypothetical question. It was this. If Gilles Duceppe, the former leader of the Bloc Québécois, came back to lead, you know, the PQ, who would you vote for? And this poll that just came out 48 hours ago showed that in such a case, a party Québécois revitalized by a hypothetical leadership of Gilles Duceppe would actually lead Francois Legault's party, push the Liberal Party to third position and the PQ to fourth. 
Wow. So today, people are, uh, commenters are trying to understand what is going on. Somebody who was soundly defeated six months ago, lost his own writing, and has uh, been uh, sort of held accountable for one of the worst defeats uh, of the Quebec nationalist movement in history, six months later is considered the savior of a party sinking in the polls. So it, it sounds like, I mean, volatile, like with an exclamation mark. I mean, you, it, like the federal election, you, you could not have predicted the, the outcome in Quebec. And it looks like uh, similarly in the province of Quebec uh, at, at the provincial level, mm-hmm. there's no, you have no idea who your next premier could possibly be. No, n- not only that, is, is that it's difficult to figure out what exactly the different parties will do and who will be leading them. For example, there's rumors of a putsch to unseat the present leader of the party, Quebecois, Pauline Marois. Giuseppe is rumored to be one of the people uh, involved in a potential leadership change. But there's two other uh, people I mentioned. One is presently in the caucus, and the other one resigned from the PQ caucus and became an independent uh, MA member of the National Assembly about six months ago. So the hypothesis flying around is that that man who actually was quite popular, Pierre Curzi, uh, uh might come back to the PQ if Pauline Marois resigns or is pushed out in order to prevent a Gilles Giuseppe attempt to take over the PQ. So at this present stage, no one can tell you who might lead the PQ in the provincial election if it's held within six months or a year. There's also rumors that Jean Charest might step back up. And therefore, who might lead the Liberal Party in six months to a year? There's a, that new party coming along, uh, led by François Legault, and, you know, it's an untried story. So we are heading into very, very troubled waters, very uncharted territory. So, Roger, do you have any uh, sense of, of where this leaves the uh, the sovereigntist movement in Quebec? Well, I mean, it's very clear that the sovereigntist movement was thoroughly shaken up uh, with the defeat of May 2nd with the orange wave, the surge of the NDP. And it probably um, is undergoing now the worst crisis in its history. The Bloc Québécois is, is, is pretty much of a non-entity right now. And it's leaderless, rudderless, and no one knows if it will survive in time. The PQ is in the midst of a crisis. It has lost six members of the caucus who are sitting independent. There's rumors of a putsch inside the caucus that might be uh, more or less led by about 15 members of the present caucus. In other words, about a third of the present caucus, about 45, they have a caucus of about 45, 46 members, is actively working against the present leadership. So, obviously, the kind of questions which are raised is that if this should continue, we might see the PQ totally collapse and probably fall down just like the Bloc Québécois and end up with three or four seats, which is something that the PQ has never had. I mean, from the moment they were formed back in 1968 in the first election in 1970, they had six members in the MNA and had about 27% of the voters. So we're looking at possibly a catastrophic decline and collapse, or under the hypothesis of a Gilles de Sepp, it might come back you know, a possible resurgence uh, of that movement. And it's very difficult to figure out from one week to the next. I'm not saying from one month to the next. I'm saying from one week to the next, 
where this movement is headed. Actually, at the present time, it's fragmented. Can it be reunited? Hard to say. Will it still be a factor in Quebec? Yes, but probably not under the leadership of the PQ. Well, um, Roger, they, they seem like very unprecedented uh, times politically. Frankly, uh, I, I've never seen it. <laughs> well, uh, I want to thank you very much for uh, those insights into uh, Quebec's political culture. And, sure. Uh, hopefully Maybe one, one last comment. Oh, for certain. Yeah. I, I think at the same time as we have this incredible uh, infusion and, and, and change of the old guard in terms of uh, the political establishment in Quebec, we also have a tremendously interesting opening uh, on the left side of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. You know, and we have two possible strategies on the left side of the spectrum. We have one, which is more or less symbolized by the NDP, the attempt to form a social democratic party somewhat from above. Mainstream. You know. There's also the, ex- uh, the experiment, which is Quebec Solidaire, trying to form a grassroots left linked with the social movement. And, you know, since there's an opening at the, uh, on the left, it's hard to say which of these two strategies will prevail over the next few years. But it's all giving you also a sense of the historical opportunities which are opening up at the same time in Quebec. You know, it's a crisis time. And in a crisis, you have both the opportunities for tremendous progressive development, but also backward development or mm-hmm. regression. Well, definitely uh, exciting and, and fascinating times uh, within uh, the politics of Quebec. Roger Rachi, I want to thank you very much for sharing those insights with us. And that was uh, Roger Rachi, Roger Rachi, who is uh, a social and political activist. Uh, from Quebec and a contributor to Canadian Dimension magazine. There have been several provincial elections so far this fall, including Manitoba, Ontario, and Newfoundland. Next up is Saskatchewan, where voters will head to the polls on November 7th. To discuss the upcoming election, Alert has contacted John Warnock, a Regina political economist and author. Welcome to Alert Radio, John. Good afternoon. So let's start off with the party leaders. Can you tell us a little bit about Saskatchewan's current premier, Brad Wall, the leader of the Saskatchewan party? Um, yeah, he's, uh, he's, he's got a, a background in the old conservative party, the progressive conservative party here, but then the Saskatchewan party was formed a few years ago, an alliance between uh, what was left of the Conservative Party and some conservative liberals. Uh, so it is taking the place of the traditional right-wing party in Saskatchewan. And Brad Wall, I would say, is uh, very personable. He is a good speaker. He looks good on television. And he's a, he's a smart politician. And he's quite moderate. He realizes that if he takes a really radical line, uh, his support will drop. So I think he's a very capable politician. Let's move on to the NDP leader, Dwayne Lingenfelter. This will be his first election as leader of the NDP, correct? Right, yes. But, you know, he was elected a long time ago in the Romano government in 1991, and he was deputy leader of the NDP back then and was a member of the five-person inner cabinet. So Lingenfelter was deeply involved in the whole 
uh, transition of the NDP in Saskatchewan from sort of a Keynesian social democratic party uh, to a party embracing neoliberalism. And so, and everybody knows this. And in 1999, he stepped down after the election. NDP went down in the, in the vote and took a job with Nexon Oil Corporation in Calgary. And then he was asked to come back and lead the party a couple of years ago by members of the caucus and a few large trade unions when, when Lauren Calvert was stepping down as leader of the party. And he was elected in a sort of a controversial uh, election for the leader of the party. So what about the uh, the Liberal Party? We should probably mention them as well, even though they, they currently don't have any seats and haven't for several years. Do you think they have uh, a sh- any shot at winning a few seats, or is this strictly going to be an NDP Saskatchewan no, uh, party? That's one of the big changes in Saskatchewan is the collapse and disappearance of the Liberal Party. Um, they used to get between 14 and 35 percent of the vote or something like that, and they're down now in the polls in the last year between 1 and 3 percent of the vote, and in this election, they're only running nine candidates, and so I think everybody expects that they will even be behind the Green Party this year when the elections uh, votes are tallied up, and they certainly won't elect anybody. So there seems to be a bit of a lack of voter interest in this election in Saskatchewan. Would you say that's an accurate assessment? Are there any big issues that have captured at least some public attention? No, I don't think so. Uh, in fact, there's been a general trend, and I there hasn't been much comment on this in the press, but there's been a general trend in the fall of the NDP to drop in their vote in the federal elections and the provincial elections, and which I attribute to uh, the party's strong move to the right to embrace the neoliberal agenda. And so there's hardly any difference between the NDP in office for 14 years and and the Conservative Party. They basically, when they took over in 1991, they simply followed the policies of of uh, the Grant Divine Conservatives. And I, what you see here is a lot of people have simply totally dropped out of politics completely. The membership of the NDP has dropped dramatically and... Uh, also, the turnout in elections has dropped at the same time. The number of people voting both federally and provincially has steadily declined. It used to be around 78 to 80 percent. In the last election, in 2007, for example, only 53 percent of eligible voters voted. And many people, including me, think it will drop below 50 percent this time. Well, with the decline in support for the NDP and um, this kind of rise in support for the Saskatchewan party. I mean, they've, polls have suggested they have 60% support somewhere in that range. Right. Do you, do you see this as an indicative of a more significant shift? Are we seeing the emergence of another, say, Alberta, like another one party dominated province? Well, I don't know about that yet, but, uh, I think one of the advantages is that the, Saskatchewan Party has right now is relative to the rest of Canada. Things are going quite well here economically. Uh, population is growing for the first time in a long time. Uh, average wages are now above the, the national average, and they always were below the national average. And unemployment rate is generally the lowest in Canada. And so I think, and the price of housing has gone up. And so a lot of people think that they're much better off than they used to be because of the bubble in the housing market. So I think people are just generally satisfied with the way things are right now, and they're unwilling to to change anything. 
But uh, I think the, the reason why most people are not interested in the campaign is, one, as you say, the polls show the Saskatchewan party at around 6% and the NDP at around 30%. You know, they think it's a foregone conclusion, and so they're not... There is no real uh, debate on any issues, really, in this election. Most are predicting, um, obviously, a majority for the Saskatchewan party. What's what's your prediction? Do you do you have one for, for the outcome on November 7th? Well, everybody, I think everyone here is predicting a big win for the Saskatchewan party, and the, the speculation really right now is how few seats the NDP will win. In 1982, when they were run out of the party uh, in an election, they went down to eight seats, and some people say, well, they have a sort of a hardcore of 14 seats, so everybody's looking at time to see if they'll be down to 14 seats or even lower than that. And uh, if the polls are right, because the last couple of polls showed this fast party with the majority support in Saskatoon and Regina, they could be down to 8 or 10 seats. All right. Well, thanks for sharing your insights with us on this election, and we look forward to watching the results as they come in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess. We'll be we'll be interested. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thank you for speaking okay. with us. Okay. Yeah. Bye. Alert has been speaking with John Warnock, a Regina political economist and author about the upcoming Saskatchewan election. With the NDP leadership race in full swing, we find a number of candidates have already pronounced their intentions to run for the leadership, and it takes place in the context of the Occupy movement. Marie Dobbin has written, recently written an article entitled Occupy the NDP, in which he places that uh, NDP leadership in the context of the Occupy movement. So, to join me from on the line from BC is Marie Dobbin. So, thank you for joining us, Marie. Hi, Michael. So could you tell us, first of all, why you believe the Occupy movement uh, is uh, so critical in terms of the NDP leadership race and the kinds of issues that should be raised there? Well, I mean, I think it's pretty clear, although, I mean, of course, the Occupy movement has been has been trashed by various right-wing columnists and others as, you know, as, as being confused, not having any, any demands and, and uh, not having any leadership, all of those things. Uh, which of course uh, many see as the strength of the of the Occupy movement, but it, it's clear that it's it, that it is, it is at its core an anti-capitalist movement. I mean, it it is denouncing the grotesque inequality of of this particular period of of what is often called savage capitalism, um, and it is demanding um, fundamental changes. Um, so, if the NDP leadership candidate don't take that into account. Um, then it seems to me that they're they're really losing touch with what is potentially, uh, you know, the biggest social movement we've seen in a long time. So I think we need to look at, you know, we we, we tend to be judging the NDP leadership candidates as if uh, it's in a sort of vacuum. You know, uh, where do they stand on certain policy issues? You know, um, you know who's endorsing them? All of this stuff is is very traditional uh, and very removed from uh the reality not only of the of the uh, occupy movement but of the context in which they're operating that is to say um a, a completely failed capitalist system one that is now in perpetual crisis 
and yet we don't see uh, most of the candidates uh, even talking about a capitalist crisis. Um, they talk about tinkering around the edges, and you know you can you can imagine you know as this contest goes on, there'll be you know there'll be uh, uh, you know news releases here and there with policies you know trying to outflank each each candidate trying to outflank the other with with some you know clever new policy. But the context is uh, is fundamentally changed from the last leadership convention that the NDP had when they elected Jack Layton. And we are talking a broad social movement. And ha- has there been anything comparable in the since the inception of the NDP that uh, could help shape the kind of dialogue we see during the campaign? Well, that's a very good question. I, my my um, analysis of, of, of progressive politics in Canada has always been um, that one of its major weaknesses is a, is a huge gap between formal big P politics uh, and the NDP uh, and social movement politics. You know, in a, in a rational world, and in fact in Latin America and in Europe, social movement groups and labor groups, um, uh, you know, have, have often endorsed political parties. And if the political parties don't do what they say they're going to do, then they don't endorse them again. It's not rocket science. But in Canada, for some reason, there is this almost pathological aversion uh, on the part of social movements and environmental groups to getting involved in federal politics in a way that would actually be effective. Um, and so I don't think there, you know, you know I, I think that historically the, it, which is odd, historically the NDP has, has really rejected any connection with social movements and in fact has been, often been quite hostile to them. Um, in my home province in Saskatchewan, Roy Romano once told me that social movements were completely useless. So it gives you an idea of where the NDP is on this. And social movements, for their part, haven't been much better in the sense that they, you know, that they, they think they have to maintain some, some sort of esoteric, um, uh, neutrality when it comes to electing governments, which are, you know, the entities that actually have power. So that's a very long answer to, to your question, but I don't think, uh, I, it's odd because you know the, the CCF was in fact um, grew out of movements. It grew out of a, out of the farmer movement and the workers movement, um, and then gradually became you know a, a bureaucratized party. And so, really, since the NDP was formed in the early '60s, I don't think there has been a real connection, except with labor, um, between extra parliamentary politics and, and, and big P party politics. Mm. And. Um you know, it, it seems to me that there was a, a CBC uh, columnist uh, or a columnist uh, on the CBC uh, panel who commented that uh, instead of going out and joining this uh, Occupy movement, people should just be taking out memberships in the NDP and, and supporting their uh, particular candidate uh, of choice that's you know, supporting their initiatives. Um, yeah, that's an absolutely typical NDP response. Uh, I mean, friends of mine, you know, people who I'd known for years in Saskatchewan, um, would would regularly just sort of dismiss me and just say, "Well, just join the NDP. You know, until you do, you're a loser." I mean, this is this is the you know the traditional sort of conventional response of the NDP to anyone who you know doesn't devote their life to the party, which means essentially doing nothing between elections and giving money and and putting you know things on doorknobs, uh, you know, during the election. Well, you're looking at the uh, the existing candidates. I mean, the people who are considered the front runners, and and so on and so forth. Um, wh- what is your assessment of the playing field uh, currently? I mean, who would be 
uh, more in tune with the, the Occupy, uh, the, the priorities of the Occupy movement and who is more representative of what, what you seem to be calling this establishment politics? Well, I mean, I think, you know, I, I've been criticized for not mentioning, you know, the other five candidates, but I think the three that I think are, are the key candidates are um, Mulcair and Top and, and Peggy Nash. Um, Mulcair is a, is a, I think, would be a catastrophic choice for the NDP. He is an unrepentant capitalist. Um, while he was finance uh, critic, he made almost no criticisms of the, of the Harper government, had no progressive uh, ideas for the economy, either, either the economy or fiscal policy, um, didn't oppose the, the, the tax cuts um, that, um, that the government implemented. Um, and so, I, and I think that you know he and he comes from the Quebec Liberal Party, which he should. I mean, he was good on some issues on the environment, and apparently left the Liberal Party on that basis, a principled basis on an environmental question. But you know, the country's more than the environment, and and uh, I think he's he's just pretty really right wing. I think Brian Top is a real question mark. I mean, he's worked for some of the most conservative NDP leaders, like Roy Romano. Um, you know, for years he was one of Romano's principal advisors, and Romano was was certainly just a small L liberal. He actually cut Medicare and and education more than the Grant Divine government did. And so, um, although Brian Top has now come out saying we should you know increase uh, taxes on the wealthy and on corporations, which I completely agree with, he's an unknown quantity in terms of of how he would actually um, uh, run the party, and he certainly didn't demonstrate any. Um, uh, any affection for social movements or labor while he was in uh, while he was in Saskatchewan, so he's a real question mark. Um, uh, Peggy Nash, on the other hand, I think um, you know has been involved in movement politics most of her life. I mean, worked for the CAW, of course, but the CAW was a union that was that was very attuned to social movement organizations, uh, put a lot of money into the Action Canada network when it fought the Free Trade Agreement. So I think she comes from roots that suggest that she would um, be much more um, understanding of uh, the importance of the Occupy movement than any of the other candidates. Um, Robion Saganash, I think, you know, from all I've read, and I don't know that much about him, but from what I have read, he seems like a, like a very progressive uh, uh, individual, and he certainly has a, an excellent reputation in the First Nations community. But I don't think that he has the uh, ability to win this. And I've been sort of focusing on, you know, in my comments on, on, on someone who I think might actually win. And I think Peggy Nash could come up, uh, you know, up the center between the two so-called um, uh, leaders of the, uh, in the race right now and, and could possibly win it. Okay. Well, Murray Dobbin, I, uh, I don't know if you have any uh, parting thoughts about this, uh, this leadership race, but, uh, in terms of the Occupy movement itself, uh, if you had to uh, recommend a, a demand, because they haven't actually had any formal demands yet, uh, uh, what would be the, the number one demand that you would uh, suggest? <laughs> I'd like to suggest the end of capitalism, but that's a pretty big demand. I don't know that. I don't know that um, that they that there is a single demand um, that they could make. Uh, you know, it, it's it, they, there's such a broad um, uh, group of people. I, I mean, I suppose genuine democracy might be a good demand, and if there was a genuine democracy, we, we might actually get rid of capitalism. 
um, uh, certainly in its current form. Um, so I think uh, I, I think what they're doing in terms of demanding um, that uh, governments and corporations pay attention to the sort of grotesque inequality that that the current uh, sort of stage of capitalism has produced. Um, I think uh, the, the, the more they can do that, the more they can draw attention to that, and the more they can legitimize uh, a movement for greater equality, uh, I think that's their role, and I think they've been doing a great job so far. Marie Dauvin, I want to thank you very much for uh, sharing those perspectives with us on Alert. We'll just have to uh, watch and see how the uh, leadership race uh, unfolds and uh, hope that you'll uh, keep us... Uh, informed of your own perspectives of the way uh, the uh, campaign's going. So sure, thank you. For, do that. Thank you for joining us. Okay, bye, Michael. Bye. And that was Murray Dauman. He is a uh, based in BC. He's a commentator, political observer on uh, Canadian federal politics. Hi. This is Mitch Podolik. This is Music as a Weapon. And today we're going back to 1937 and 1938 to the Spanish Civil War. And we're going to listen to some great pieces of music. I'm very familiar with Pete Seeger's album. And I've had that album since I was a little kid. And when I began to research this a little bit, I found a whole bunch of new songs that I'd never heard before. To start with, here is the Fifth Regiment. <laughs> de julio en el patio de un convento el pueblo madrileño fundó el quinto regimiento anda jaleo jaleo ya se acabó el alboroto y vamos al tiroteo y vamos al tiroteo Con lister y campesino, con galán y con modesto, con el comandante Carlos, no hay milicia, no con miedo. Anda jaleo, jaleo, ya se acabó el alboroto y vamos al tiroteo y vamos al tiroteo con los cuatro batallones que a Madrid están defendiendo se va lo mejor de España, la flor más roja del pueblo. Anda jaleo, jaleo, ya se acabó el alboroto y vamos al tiroteo, y vamos al tiroteo.
Con el quinto, 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 con el quinto regimiento, madre yo me voy al frente para las líneas de fuego. Anda, jaleo, jaleo, ya se acabó el alboroto y vamos al tiroteo, y vamos al tiroteo. Civil War, but a lot of people got involved in the Civil War from all over the world. They came to support the Republic and fight against fascism. And in Germany, where fascism was huge, and of course Hitler was in power, came a whole group of people to become part of the International Brigade, the Tailman Brigade, and other people came and joined the anarchists in the poem to fight against fascism. German actor, singer, theater director Ernst Busch went to Spain and he fought against fascism. And he led a great choir there right in the middle of the battle. You can hear the cannons going back and you can hear the, the fight going on while the choir is singing. It's quite neat on that old album. Ernst Busch recorded all kinds of things outside of this album. I've just found a whole bunch of them. And here he is leading Rotes Madrid. Altstand! Rotes Madrid! Altstand! Rotes Madrid! Schicken dir die Faschisten auf ihre Söldner ins Land. Sie alle werden zerbrechen an deinem Widerstand. Als Stadt, rotes Verdrängt. Als Stadt, schwarzes Verdrängt. Da hast verwehren, an deiner Seite zu sein, die kühnsten Kämpfer auf Erden marschieren in deinen Reihen. Altstadt, rotes Vertritt, Altstadt, schwarzes Vertritt, das Geld ein
at the barricades and before that, Rodas Madrid, they make you want to get up and get a gun and go shoot a fascist. I like songs like that. They make me feel real good. One of the things that's happened is 73 years since the Spanish Civil War, and these songs have been kicking around all that time, and the folk community, of course, picked them up in the 1950s, which wasn't that long from the Spanish Civil War. But as the folk community has developed, so have songwriters and have taken some of these old songs and kind of given them their own special kind of uh, rewrite and trying to make them more modern. Christy Moore, who's an Irish songwriter, great Irish songwriter, took one of my favorite old songs, Viva la Quince Brigada, Viva the 15th Brigade, and he's rewritten it, and I think you're going to find it's really neat. And ten years before I saw the light of morning A comradeship of heroes was laid From every corner of the world came sailing The 15th International Brigade They came to stand beside the Spanish people To try and stem the rising fascist tide Franco's allies were the powerful and wealthy Frank Ryan's men came from the other side Even the olives were bleeding As the battle for Madrid had thundered on To root and love against the force of evil Brotherhood against the fascist land Viva la quinta brigada No pass around the pledge to let him fight Adelante is the cry around the hillside all remember them tonight Bob Hillard was a Church of Ireland pastor From Killarney across the Pyrenees he came From Derry came a brave young Christian brother Side by side they fought and died in Spain And Tommy Woods at 17 died in Cordoba But the Vienna he learned to hold a gun from Dublin to the Via del Rio Where he fought and died beneath the Spanish sun Viva la quinta brigada No pass around the pledge that made him fight Adelante is the cry around the hillside Let us all remember them tonight Many Irish heard the call of Franco joined Hitler and Mussolini too propaganda from the pulpit and newspapers and got Duffy to enlist his crew and the word came from the news support the Nazi the men of cloth they failed again but the bishops blessed the blue shirts in Dunleary as the sail beneath the swastika to Spain Viva la quinta brigada No pass around the pledge that made him fight Adelante is the cry around the hillside Let us all remember them tonight This song is a tribute to Frank Ryan Conway and Dinny Cody too 
A Peter Daly, Charlie Regan, and Gio Bonner. Dumbledore died to come but never feel. Danny Boyle, Blazer Brown, and Charlie Donnelly. Liam Tomlinson and Jim Strady for up the fall. Jack Nelty, Tommy Patton, and Frank Conroy. Jim Foley, Tony Fox, and Dick O'Neill. No pass around the pledge that made him fight. Adelante is the cry around the hillside. Let us all remember them tonight. Evil La Quinta Brigada. Let us all remember them tonight. Evil La Quinta Brigada. From the farms, from the cities, from every land came the Abe Lincoln Brigade with a dream in their hearts. Gun in their hands, the Abraham Lincoln Brigade. No passeran, no passeran, so sang the Abe Lincoln Brigade. Across the years and the oceans, we still sing the song of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade. Cries from the cities, shouts from the hills. The Abraham Lincoln Brigade, the fire in the hearts that is warming us still. The Abraham Lincoln Brigade, no passeran, no passeran. So sang the Abe Lincoln Brigade. Across the years and the oceans, we still sing the song of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade. Side by side with the Abraham Lincoln Brigade. No passeran, no passeran. So sang the Abe Lincoln Brigade. Across the years and the oceans, we still sing the song of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade. So raise glasses and voices, give them a toast. Oh, the Abe Lincoln Brigade. Those who die best are the ones who live most, like the Abraham Lincoln Brigade. No passeran, 
no passing on. So sing the Abe Lincoln Brigade. Cross the years and the oceans, and still sing the song of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade. No passing on, no passing on. So sing the Abe Lincoln Brigade. Cross the years and the oceans, and still sing the song of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade. That was John McCutcheon with the Abraham Lincoln Brigade, and before that, Christy Moore with Viva La Quince Barragada. And that's it for this week, folks. Long live the memory of the martyrs who fought against this fascism in Spain. Solidarity. Well, that's our show for this week. Thanks for being with us. We'll be here next week at this time. If you would like to send us a comment, write to alert at CanadianDimension.com. To hear this show again, or to hear any of our past shows, go to the Canadian Dimension website at CanadianDimension.com and select Alert. The show is also podcast on Ravel.ca. The executive producer of Alert is Canadian Dimension publisher Saigonic. Technical producer is Andrew Valby, assisted by Selena Surik. Alert headlines by Ben Wood, Around the Left by Ashley Titterton, Music is the Weapon by Mitch Padala. I'm Ashley Titterton. And I'm Michael Welch. Alert Radio is a production of Canadian Dimension magazine. Yeah.